you would take your Bible this morning, not to the book of Romans, Colossians. Over the last few days, many of you joined us as we gathered to feast on the rich truths of Scripture that feed our soul, nourishing us with each one of those topics that we looked at that are necessary for a healthy church, a high view of God, high view of Scripture, a biblical understanding of man, the church. As we've considered the necessity of each one of those and worked through those, you may have noted that we also discussed that there are a number of those who gather on Sunday mornings who are malnourished and starving. Not that Bibles aren't brought to those gatherings, but that they're rarely opened so that people are rarely served nourishing food. It's, it's sort of like bringing the bowl filled with nourishing food, never taking the lid off, never distributing the contents, never actually feeding the people. And as a result of that, people grow weaker, wasting away, and incredibly vulnerable. As you know, some of these places, if food is distributed, it's done so in incredibly small quantities. It's watered down. It's quickly distributed. Quickly distributed because you don't want to just give too much because people may not like that and they may not come back. There's one more doctrine that we need to set our attention to, to feast upon. One more column in the bridge as we introduced it on Friday night that has to be established for the bridge to be able to stand for whatever storms come, whatever conditions come our way. One more doctrine that's critical to the viability and sustainability of any local church, it's this. The centrality of Christ and the gospel. This is our view of Christ, this is our view of salvation. This is a Christology, this is a soteriology. Now, as we've identified, the reason that we have to even talk about that is because that there is a problem that exists. Either, on one hand, Christ is altogether absent and the gospel is altogether absent, not being preached, or maybe even more common where we live is that the Jesus that is being preached is a much lesser Jesus than he reveals himself to be in Scripture. And as a result of that, he's a Jesus who cannot save you. If your trust is in that Jesus, you have no salvation. I referenced J. Gresham Machen at the beginning. This is what he said in this regard as it has to do with Jesus. The modern liberal preacher reverences Jesus. He has the name of Jesus forever on his lips. He speaks of Jesus as the supreme revelation of God, he enters or tries to enter into the religious life of Jesus, but he does not stand in religious relation to Jesus. Here's the point. Jesus for him is an example of faith, not the object of faith. The modern liberal, he said, tries to have faith in Jesus like the faith which he supposes Jesus had in God, but he does not have faith in Jesus. Machen concludes this, saying that the truth is that if Jesus be merely an example, he is not a worthy example, for he claimed to be far more. The, the liberal perspective then, as it regards Jesus, Machen notes, is liberalism regards Jesus as the fairest flower of humanity. Christianity regards him as a supernatural power. 
By the way, we can sing Ferris Lord Jesus because you remember the words that also came in that? Ruler of the nations. This is a whole different concept that the liberal position holds. The fairest flower of humanity. The example of faith but not the object of faith. Subtly, what does that look like? Subtly, that looks like the Jesus that's preached Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in a number of churches. Subtly, that looks like the Jesus that fills many casual conversations that you have with people who are willing to talk to you about Jesus, but you're actually talking about a different Jesus. Subtly, that looks like the Jesus of the television series. Subtly, that looks like the Jesus of innumerable cringeworthy worship songs that are probably coming to your mind right now, and I'm going to spare you citing lyrics to prove my point. The question is, is that the Jesus of Scripture? And this is where Colossians is helpful. Look with me in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, and hear Paul's description of Jesus in the gospel. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Paul is describing to us there the lordship of Jesus Christ. Lordship meaning he has control, he has authority. This is his divine presence. His point is, is, is really here that he's not just the fairest flower of humanity, but he is the Lord over every single flower in humanity. He is the Lord over everything. He determines when everything exists. He determines where it exists, and he determines when it ceases to exist, meaning he's far more than an example for us. He's worthy of our life. He's worthy of our devotion, our eternity. You can trust him with your soul because he is God. Think who Paul is describing here is best summarized by one commentator who stated this, there is no sphere of existence over which he is not sovereign and supreme. How does Paul show us that Jesus is sovereign and supreme? Far more than just a good teacher, far more than the fairest flower of humanity, that he's far more than just a model of what faith looks like, that he is in fact God incarnate, in control, possessing authority, God in flesh, and the God to whom you can commit the destiny of your soul. Well, I think we can summarize what Paul is saying here into four declarations of his lordship. The first declaration is this, there in verse 15, the supremacy of Christ in presence. The supremacy of Christ in presence. To show you that Jesus is supreme to everything in creation and thus authoritative over creation, Paul first reminds us that Jesus is God. Look at verse 15. 
He is the image of the invisible God. Truly man, truly God, he is the image here being the visible manifestation of an invisible heavenly reality. The visible, observable embodiment of the invisible God. Did you just note in, in those, four wor- those, those, those few words there at the beginning of verse 15 that image stands right beside visible and both of those are relating to God. You know that what Francisco talked about yesterday, that each and every man is made in the image of God is a unique creature in all of creation. You know, based on how God created you in the image of God, that you're distinct from the creation that you see around you in a particular way, made in his image. But in the sense in which Jesus is the image of the invisible God, friend, this is different. He is uniquely the image of the invisible God, expressly because He is God, possessing attributes that belong exclusively to God. This is the testimony of Scripture. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you're paying attention there, that's Genesis language. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 1.1. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.8 cites Psalm 45, verse 6, referring to the Son, saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And, and remember there in the presence of Thomas, the resurrected Christ is standing there, and Thomas says those words to him, My Lord and my God, in John 20, 28. And Jesus didn't say, Hey, Thomas, that's blasphemy, don't say that. But it was an affirmation of who Jesus had revealed himself to be. Why did he not correct him? Namely that he had said numerous times this is who he is. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Remember what they did? They knew exactly who he was claiming to be. They picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Providentially, I shared this with Colin, I think on Friday or Thursday, working through this section on the divinity of Christ. My phone rings, which many of you are surprised because you know I keep it on silence a lot of times when I'm studying. I answer it. It's telemarketer. Many of you know I'm the missionary to the telemarketers. Paul was a missionary to Gentiles. I'm a missionary to telemarketers. Hi, this is John. I'm with XYZ Company. Hi, John. Has anybody ever told you about the gospel? He says, I've gone to church, but I've never heard about the gospel. I go to church with a friend every Friday, and I've never heard about the gospel. Let me tell you about the gospel. You need salvation. You're a sinner. You'll be judged one day. Jesus came to die for you, to carry your sins away, to deal with them there on the cross. If you place your trust and faith in him, oh, okay, I've never heard that before. In thinking about this, I said, oh, and by the way, Jesus is God. You know what John said? No, he's not. I'm a Muslim. John, read John eight fifty eight. John, read the gospel of John. 
He says he's going to call me back. I'm still waiting. Jesus as God is critical. This is who he reveals himself to be. This is the Savior you need. John chapter 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. What do you think he meant by that? Just in case you still, you're not sure, maybe Paul thinks Jesus is God, maybe he thinks something different. Look at Colossians 2, verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. No, that's chapter, two, chapter 1, verse 9, right? If, if you or anyone else proclaims Jesus is anything less than the image of the invisible God, the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, anything less, you're denying his deity. You've been blinded by Satan, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4. You've not been saved because... you're unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You're rejecting in in all ways, as we've seen over the last few days, the authority of Scripture. You're rebelling against the Son and who is claimed to be. So a warning, as, as we consider this is essential for a healthy church, flee from churches, flee from false teachers, flee from any sort of an outlet proclaiming Jesus is something less than God having come in flesh. But also flee, flee from those false teachers who would never say it in so many words, but who would teach that Jesus isn't all that unique because we're all pretty much just the same, we're sort of like him. Christian, that that is something that creeps up from time to time because it's staggering when you consider the application of redemption. You are united to Christ. We've looked at that in the book of Romans. Because of his work, you are adopted into the family of God. We've looked at that in the book of Romans. Your sons and daughters... You even have that incredible truth as it regards there, Hebrews 2, 11, that he is not ashamed to call you brothers. That's always one of those things that if he didn't say that, if that wasn't revealed in the word of God, I would almost go like, I don't know that I could say that. But you cannot fail to grasp that this one who is not ashamed to call you a brother is not completely like those that he's not ashamed to call brothers. Yes, he's truly man, but he's also truly God. He is the unique son. He is the only begotten of the father. So flee from those denying that there is a tr- flee from those denying that there is a transcendent divine dignity from eternity past that is unique to Jesus that you do not possess. Flee from those who teach the exclusive nature in relationship between the father and the son is not so exclusive. Flee those that deny all of this. Those that diminish the person of Christ, friend, if they diminish the person of Christ and say that he is not God, they have nothing to offer you except to leave you without a Savior, sending you to judgment for your sins. They leave you without a Savior. And and what is at stake then is the biblical truth of the deity of Christ. And, And if that falls, so goes your faith. And so goes your righteousness, and so goes your justification, and so goes your reconciliation, and so goes adoption, and so goes the church, and so goes your eternal hope. This is like a load-bearing structure that carries the entire weight of this building here, transferring the weight to the foundation, guaranteeing the strength and the integrity and the stability of the entire building. This is a load-bearing doctrine. 
It carries upon it the full weight of salvation, the good news of the gospel, the resurrection of those who have died in Christ, the very hope of glory. And it all rests here on the truth that the man on the cross is God in flesh. The integrity of the gospel rests upon the deity of Jesus Christ. The man on the cross is God, nothing less. And being God, as we've looked at, there is nothing more. This is critical. This is essential. This is a non-negotiable. And that's why Paul is proclaiming it. So the first declaration goes out that Jesus is more than a good teacher. He's more than a model of faith. You can trust him with your soul. The first declaration is the supremacy of Christ in presence. He is God. The second is this, the command of Christ in creation in verse 15. The command of Christ in creation. To show us that Jesus here is authoritative over everything in creation, Paul highlights this creator-creation relationship. Look in verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. That adjective there, firstborn, it gives people a bit of pause because it seems to convey something here a little concerning about chronology, that there's one who is before another one that's before another one, and and it seems to give people pause because it conveys something about creation. Being born indicates somebody being created, coming into existence. But you have to understand the word and the way that it's used in the Old Testament if we're going to grasp Paul's point here. The word usage comes from the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Israel was described as the Lord's firstborn. Israel wasn't the first nation to exist on the entire planet Earth. Instead, what we understand that he's saying there is that this is describing her position in relation to Yahweh who has a special love that is reserved for her that's evident from the promises that he has made to her and the way that he has acted towards her, that he keeps these promises. Another example of this is found in Psalm 89 verse 27 where you see this word firstborn show up. In Psalm 89, verse 19 through 37, there's a description there of the Lord's covenant with David. You get to verse 27, and it says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. David was not the first king in Israel. Saul was. He was not even chronologically the firstborn in his family. You'll remember he had older brothers, and yet he's described here in the language of firstborn, meaning this is to put him in a position of sovereignty. This has to do with his rank. So by referring here to Jesus in verse 15 of Colossians, as the firstborn of all creation, Paul is using the single best word available to convey that Jesus has the highest position, the supreme rank, and the primary place, that he is the sovereign Lord and ruler over all creation, firstborn. Paul is identifying Jesus as Lord of creation. You might ask, are you sure that Paul wasn't referring to Jesus being created first? Yes, I'm sure of that. Why? Think of the context that's here. What bookends this description of him being firstborn of all creation? Before this is he is described as deity as we just looked at. After this, he makes this distinction that he is creator, not creation. Look at verse 16. For by, in, or for by him or in him, either one, all things were created 
both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. What is Paul conveying? Jesus is Lord. What does Lord mean? He has control. He has authority as it relates here to creation. And creation's very existence is by or in the Lord of creation. It's not apart from him. It's not independent from him. And this is in line with what you read throughout the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, is describing his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Paul summarizes here for us what the Lord of creation created. It's simple, all things. You mean whatever comes to your mind, and the answer is yes. All things just shows up again and again and again throughout this section. In, in verse 15 there, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. All things here in heaven, describing the things both above, we could say in the sky and in the spiritual realm, but he's going to get to the spiritual realm in a minute. Primarily, he's talking here about as you look up and you see the sky, and, and remember, as the man that's saying this, he knows the Old Testament, he knows Psalm 102, verse 25 says, the heavens are the work of his hands. Paul is attesting here to his deity. This is God that's created the heavens. He says all things in the heavens, all things on earth, describing the things here below. Think Genesis 1-1 again, God created the heavens and the earth. Again, attesting to this being the divine presence here in the person of Christ. All things were created in the heavens and the earth. That is a statement encompassing everything. There is nothing that the Lord of creation was not involved in creating. So dear creature who is different than your brother, you're not going to observe something that Jesus did not create. You can hop in your car and drive all day. You can get on a boat. You can get on a plane. You can even pay a couple hundred thousand dollars to take that rocket trip for your 15-minute ride to get a whole perspective of the world, a whole new perspective of everything that Jesus created. He says here, visible and invisible He's just described the visible, the invisible. That's dealing with an issue that may have existed at the church at Colossae, a church in a pagan culture that was pulling there at Christians as to whether Jesus was really any different than all of the Greek gods that they had long worshipped before they came to Christ, gods that were invisible, but they were very real to a pagan culture. And the words here are direct that whatever you see that exists and whatever you cannot see that might actually exist, its very existence is directly related to Jesus who is Lord over creation. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, commentators note that is his describing the invisible. That He's using the words there are the four classes of angelic powers that the people would have been familiar with. Paul is describing here in such a way so as to show them that they fall under the control and authority of the Lord Jesus. In no way is he submissive to them. He is different from them. He is not subject to them. 
Paul is going to express why that is important, why that's critical for your salvation in chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. This relates to your redemption as a Christian, as one who's no longer a slave under your old master, but as one who has been freed. Paul says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in Jesus. He's not submissive to them. He's not an equal to them. He is sovereign over them. He is victorious. That's what Paul is describing here over sin and Satan and death. And if you want to see what that looks like in real time as it plays out over the pages of Scripture, just look in the Gospels, look at the Lord of creation there in the wilderness, even before he goes to die there on the cross. He's starving, he is exhausted, he is in the most extreme of elements, and then the greatest tempter arrives. And yet as the temptations come one right after the other, the Lord of creation prevails. Then as his ministry begins... What you see is that he's demonstrating that he's Lord. He is casting demons out. They listen, they respond, they go out. They do exactly as he says. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul highlights this authority saying, Jesus has been seated at the right hand of his Father in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in the, this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. He is authoritative over all. He is first over all. He is in control over all. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before all things, he holds first place, first priority, first rank, first status. If he's before all things, he was not created. This speaks to his eternality. Not only eternally, eternal future, but eternity past that in the beginning, Jesus was. Do you see why you have to have a proper doctrine of the creation of the world to be able to understand who Jesus is? You can't just throw that aside. His going forths are from old, from everlasting, Micah 5, 2. You can tie that to him. John 17, 5, he's glorified with the Father before the world was. Revelation 1, 8, he is the one who was and is and is to come. Revelation 1, 17, he's the first and the last. Why is Paul telling us this? I think because sometimes it's hard to see in the world in which we live. Even that whole idea that he's before all things, how do you know that apart from authoritative, all-sufficient scripture telling you that. You weren't there. It's hard to see some of this. Paul's telling this to us, including what he says there next. He is the Lord Jesus who holds all things together. He is the Lord sustainer of creation. Not only is he Lord of creation because he created the universe, but he's also Lord of creation because he is the sustainer of the cosmos, the one upon whom the very existence of the universe depends, that you have air to breathe is dependent upon him this morning, that your body even holds together is dependent upon him this morning. 
Hebrews 1, 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. One commentator said it this way, the physical world does not run on its own as if it had an eternal mechanism by which it sustains itself. The world is upheld and sustained by Jesus. Sort of, you may think it's self-governed. You may think it sort of operates and functions all on its own. That is not true. That's not a Christian perspective. This sort of forms our thinking in the world in which we exist, does it not? Church, we ought to be good stewards over creation and honor God as creatures that have been redeemed through Christ and to the best we are able to do that in a world that feels the effects of sin and groans for a longing of redemption and to live in this world to subdue it and to have dominion over it as we talked about the last few days, to to cultivate the plants of the field and to consume what it gives us to feed us, that we ought to never think that we have such control and authority over it so as to hold it together by our own power. To, to either sustain it or to be able to end it, to keep it from unwinding or to meet some sort of an irreversible destruction. That ability belongs solely to the Lord of creation. And in a world without a biblical view of God or man wants you to think that man is this whole collective upholds all things by the limitation of your carbon emissions. That's ridiculous. If the end of the world is keeping you up at night and you're concerned about the environment in such a way, friend, trust Jesus. He upholds all things by the word of his power. You ought to be more concerned about your relationship with Jesus than your your relationship to the environment. The control of the whole world and the universe and the cosmos is in the hands of the creator of the world who is the sustainer of the world, the sustainer of every atom, every molecule, every particle. It's held together by him, and it has been since it was created. This is not new, but it may be new to you. We can borrow the words from James Harriet's literary works. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures big and small, all things wise and wonderful, Lord Jesus created them all, rules them all, sustains them all. Four declarations of his lordship. One, the supremacy of Christ in presence. Two, the command of Christ in creation. Number three, the preeminence of Christ in the church. Verse 18, Paul is moving along here from declaring the lordship of Christ in his divine presence to declaring the lordship of Christ by his holding supreme rank in creation, possessing authority and control. And now in verse 18, it's his lordship in the church. He is also the head of the body, the church. Paul is describing to you there the Lord of the church. That ties back to our view of the church that we looked at from yesterday. A church that is sound in doctrine, whose lives are sound, as we considered then, are those that know and subject themselves to the head of the church. And they know that the head of the church is not a pastor, it is not an elder. They understand those roles. They understand that they are merely under shepherds who watch over souls who are going to give an account to the chief shepherd, Hebrews 13, 17. They, they understand there is no pope that's head of the church. They understand that there's no popular pastor that's the head of the church. The head of the church is the chief shepherd. 
It's the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews 13, verse 20. The shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. The shepherd who has redeemed you through his blood. Friend, a, a group may call themselves a church, but if they do not recognize the divinity of Christ, the creator of all, and that he is the head of the church, they are not a church. He, he is the chief cornerstone. He is the one upon whom the whole building is set and built, the foundation of the household of God, and is the people of God. As the church, we acknowledge his divine presence. We acknowledge his control. We acknowledge his authority. We joyfully respond to his lordship. Ephesians 5.24, the church is subject to Christ. So how does the church respond to that? How does the church respond to the Lord of the church? Well, the, Lord fall, or the church follows the Lord of the church. Follows the Lord of the church. Where, where he goes, we go. We are going after him. And the church worships the Lord of the church, ascribing to him the glory that's due his name. And, and the church is satisfied with the Lord of the church. We don't want to replace him. We don't want to remove him. We don't want to modernize him. We don't want to diminish him. We do not want to dethrone him in any way. That the church is sustained by the Lord of the church. He is the one that grows her and sanctifies her and protects her because he has washed her and he has set her apart unto himself. The church trusts the Lord of the church. She trusts him with her soul. She trusts him to care for her all of her lesser needs, even as it relates to what's going on in this world, knowing that, that he protects, knowing that he defends her, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against her. The church proclaims the Lord of the church. She goes into all of the world to make disciples. What does Colossians, look at chapter 2, verse 28 say, what was Paul doing? We proclaim him, the Lord of the church, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The church proclaims the Lord of the church. The church glorifies the Lord of the church, radiating his glory, having been washed, having been made holy, living the sound life that we were looking at yesterday because we've been washed by the word. The church loves the Lord of the church. Her affections are for him. Her eyes are fixed upon him as she runs her race in this world. And her desire is to hear the words of her Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. The church loves, glorifies, proclaims, trusts, is sustained by, is satisfied with, worships and follows the Lord of the church because he is the head of the body. He's the one who has graciously saved her. And this is where Paul concludes with a biblical view of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. Four declarations, the supremacy of Christ in presence, the command of Christ in creation, the preeminence of Christ in the church, and number four, the glory of Christ in the gospel. Jesus is God. His divine presence is clear in this text. And as God, he's Lord over all creation, demonstrating his power and control, possessing the greatest rank and position. And he is Lord of the church, having greatest rank and position because the church's existence evidences his glory by his saving his people from their sins. Look at verse 18, the second half there. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning 
that harkens back to creation and the very start of something that once didn't exist. It's not that he didn't exist. He is creator. Of course he exists. This has to do with the origin of the church. Its beginning is by him. Paul adds the explanation, the firstborn from the dead. You know at this point what firstborn means. His position here in relation to his father is revealed by his being the firstborn from the dead. It was a demonstration of his love for his son to raise him. His approval upon his son and his work of saving his people from their sins. And one day, the church, his people, will follow behind. They will follow after the firstborn here with our bodies being raised, our bodies being glorified like you see in him. This is the very hope of resurrection that's found in the gospel because the Lord Jesus has demonstrated his control and his authority, his lordship over death. This is the glory of Christ in the work of redemption, dying, buried, and raised. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is also the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that, what's the purpose of all this? He himself will come to have first place in everything, the supremacy of Christ in everything, old creation and new creation that's a result of his dying and being raised. Lord of sinners and saints, enemies and sons, children of wrath and children of God, the Lord is supreme and authoritative and first in rank, and he will judge. And what was accomplished through the Lord who has first place in everything? Look at verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. All things that are reconciled are reconciled through him. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Paul is describing here the supremacy of Christ in redemption. That his father saw fit that the son be central and how sinful man would be reconciled to him. We're talking about the centrality of Christ and the centrality of the gospel his father expressed the centrality of Christ in the gospel and how he would reconcile sinners. That he would accomplish this, what does the text say? Through the blood of his cross. Blood that hearkens all the way back to the Old Testament sacrifices, except that this blood is the blood of the divine presence, not the blood of bulls or goats, but blood that is superior because it is the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews says that in Hebrews chapter 9, through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 9 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In this foundation here of the centrality of Christ, the centrality of the gospel is critical to a healthy church because it brings everything that we've looked at since Friday afternoon all back together. A biblical view of God helps you to understand that you are not like God. There is a gulf that exists between you and him. He is majestic and he is holy. And a biblical view of scripture shows all of this to him and it tells us where salvation is found. As we looked at even during the Q&A yesterday, Psalm 19.7 points to special revelation to tell us this is restoring of the soul. This is the source of life. 
Then we looked at a biblical view of man to show us that man is a sinner separated from God and your destiny is either heaven or hell. And then we had a biblical view of the church that shows us the application of redemption, that there are sinners who are saved, who are saints, whose doctrine is sound, whose lives are sound, and they go and they proclaim the gospel. And we come here to our biblical view of Christ and our biblical view of the gospel. It establishes the last foundation in this bridge where you have a bridge that goes over the gulf between sinful man and a holy God and as each one of those foundations has been absolutely critical this foundation is crucial this is the very introduction into this section of Colossians that Paul is describing that we've been studying this morning look at Colossians 1 verse 13 and 14 for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son this vast gulf that man cannot overcome himself. And he did it in him, his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. That's the centrality of Christ in the church. Now there is a danger, as we've been looking at dangers all along the way, And there is a grave danger to the souls of men if this foundation is weak. It leaves you separated forever without a savior and without a means of salvation. The Jesus of liberalism can't save you any more than you can save yourself. The best example isn't enough. The best example of faith isn't enough. The fairest flower of humanity cannot save you. You need God to save you. Your sins are so devastating and your rebellion so offensive that you need the divine to enter creation, to take on flesh, to shed this blood for you, to die on a cross for you. You need the sovereign who is over thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities to free you from your old master. You need the Lord of creation to come into creation and to rescue you. You need the Lord who created all to create a new heart in you and to give you life. You need the Lord who is before all things and who holds all things together to accomplish what no other person could accomplish. And no Jesus that the people create, no fairest flower of humanity will do, no Jesus that is just a worthy example will do, no Jesus of men's imaginations will do, but you need the Jesus who was and is and is to come that Paul has showed us right here, a Jesus that is competent to save and the Jesus that's capable to save. Machen said, if Jesus was only what the liberal historians supposed that he was, then trust in him would be out of place. Our attitude toward him could be that of pupils to a master and nothing more. But if he was what the New Testament represents him as being, then we can safely commit to him the eternal destiny of our souls. That's the Jesus Paul is presenting you with. Four declarations of his lordship, the supremacy of Christ in presence, the command of Christ in creation, the preeminence of Christ in the church, and the glory of Christ in the gospel. How does that teach us? How does that reprove us and train us and correct us and equip us? Well, it ought to show you that Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of your life, that you would submit to the one who is in control and the authority all of the days of your life. Friend, you ought not entrust your life to one who is incompetent and incapable. Paul is pointing you to the King of King and the Lord of Lords who is worthy.
He is worthy of your joy. He's worthy of your love. He's worthy of your affections. He is worthy of your worship as you ascribe worth to him. As we've seen there, he is worthy of your proclamation. We proclaim him. He's worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your faith. And this gospel shows you that faith is essential in order to be saved. And it's faith not in anyone except the Lord Jesus Christ. Most scholars think those Verses there that we just looked at were a hymn, but not exactly a hymn in the modern sense. You think of singing, but maybe more of a confession or a commonly recited doctrine of Christ, a liturgy, meaning that the church was reciting those words that expressed the lordship of Christ and his supremacy in the work of redemption. Paul was setting them here before the church these words that were frequently perhaps on their tongue, reminding them of this fifth foundation of a healthy church, a biblical doctrine of Christ and of salvation. And as a result, the church was praising Christ. They were singing and reciting and declaring, and Paul was reminding them and reminding us that there is no place in which Christ is not Lord. He is sovereign. He is supreme. And you can commit your soul to him, your eternal destiny to him. Church, I'll just leave you with this. I'm not going to give you five points of application today, right? I want you to be encouraged. Throughout the last few days, as we consider the unhealthy habits that you find in modern churches and the doctrines that are critical for a church to be healthy and to endure, I just want to wrap up this morning and all of this by expressing how thankful I am to be part of a church never grows weary of Jesus or the gospel, who never says put something else central, who never says take that away and replace it with whatever's going on in the world. That speaks to your love for him, which of course ties back first to his love for you, your love for him that shows itself by your coming hungry Sunday after Sunday to hear about him, to hear about him from his word, to hear about this gospel that we've spent two years looking at in the book of Romans, and you keep coming back saying, give me more. This is a joy for you that, that this expressed in the church that you would submit to him. You want your lives to be subject to him. It's your great desire to honor him. I see that. I think the elders of this church see that acknowledging from you that he has first place in everything, in all areas of your life, in all areas of your church. That's what you want. You yearn to follow him. You want to serve him. You desire to worship him. You want to sing songs that, that, that say how worthy he is, ascribing to him all the worth that's due his name to the one who created all things and holds all of them together. You are so eager to proclaim him. Praise God calling others to come to him. I hear your stories. I hear how you share the gospel with people, that you're eager, eager to tell them about Jesus, and then you're eager to support those that we support around the world. Who Your primary concern is, is, are they doing the same thing? And that's why we come together in June and July and we tell you, hey, they're doing the same thing. Your hope is to see him. Your hope is to be with him. When the word of God and the grace of God has done this. Centrality of Christ and the true gospel 
is evident in your life, and that's why it's evident in the church. The church gazing upon the glory of Christ and his gospel, nothing inferior will do. It's the reason you never weary, never tire, never grow exhausted of being a people whose joy it is to live for the glory of your Redeemer. Father, we're grateful as we come to the end of this text for the beauty of Christ, for the power of Christ, for the authority of Christ. Father, it's because of the truth that's detailed here that we can rest at night and we can sleep. It's the very truth that exists here that we exist as a church and a congregation whose head is the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us as we proclaim him, even as we proclaim him today, knowing that there are those that we encounter who say, I've never heard this gospel before. I've never heard anybody say Jesus is God before. And Father, we pray that you would do a work on their hearts and that the Lord of creation would create in them a new heart, cause them to be born again. This would attest to your grace and your plan that you're accomplishing through your Son and through this gospel. So Father, make us where Christ is always central The gospel is always central. And help us to live lives that express that he is worthy. All to the glory of his great name. Amen.